I, I don't think that you can do cross-cultural ministry. I don't think that you can walk along people of color if, if you don't lear, learn to lament and to grieve. And so what does it look like to, to hope um, in conjunction with that? Like they're, they're not opposites. Welcome to Listener, a podcast aimed at fostering conversation by platforming crew thought leaders. Today's episode is part two of My Flourishing is Bound Up in Yours, featuring TJ Poon of Epic. Remember, Listener is for you. So if there's someone you'd like to hear from or a topic that you'd like to hear discussed, please email me at samantha.holland at crew.org. Enjoy the show. for us to be learning and be humble and learners, you know, Mm -hmm. um, just because we, yeah, we do read things and we internalize things through our Western eyes. And I've seen that coming to the scriptures. There are just things that are not natural for me to see as I read the scriptures that are more, that are more natural um, that my people of color friends, like they see them easily and, and I don't. And so I really need, we all have to be doing interpretation in community and in diverse community. Because um, there are just things that I, yeah, I don't get them on my first or even my 10th reading mm-hmm. um, that my friends of color pick up immediately. Yeah, there is such an emphasis on personal, for example, personal piety in our religious traditions in the United States. And I was recently reading, I'm going to butcher this because I can't remember exactly what scripture it was, but it's where Jesus, it might've been John the Baptist talking about what repentance looked like. And he's kind of giving three consecutive examples to different people of what repentance would look like or different kinds of people. But basically all the types, everything he's asking them to repent from had something to do with how they interacted with other people. It's like, Mm -hmm. don't, don't withhold a tunic from your neighbor. Or if you have one, give, give, if you have two, give one away. Um, And then to the tax collectors, don't extort money from people. And it was so interesting to me to read that and say, wow, that's all about living in community and not um, oppressing other people. Like that's a huge part of the poor of Mm -hmm. repentance. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think that that does not come naturally to us. I mean, if you, if you, you know, people got out their journals (laughs) and read what they have made a practice of confessing, I don't think it would be things like gentrification or things like that. um, Yeah, there's just their own practices that might contribute. Um, You know, the things that we buy. Uh, which is is difficult for me. I shouldn't even say it because you know, it's um, it's not like I'm I'm great in that area. But just acknowledging that those things actually do contribute to the oppression of people, um, and it's not it's not something that comes naturally for us to talk or think about or even to be aware of. You know, like we repent when we yell at our children, which we should we should repent of that, or when we don't you know have a long enough quiet time or, or whatever it is. Um, but to think about the way that our just our our normal practices, what how do they contribute to the flourishing of the world, or how do they 
really not contribute? And actually, um, how are we complicit in oppressing Mm -hmm. others? So I think that that's, you know, something that I still, of course, am on a journey about and want to know more and understand more. Um, But yeah, I think it's important for us to have those conversations and to think about it, to think about what it looks like, um, what do do our daily practices mean for the world and how do we bring those in line with, uh, yeah, with what we want the world to be. So I've heard that Epic has nine elements of leadership. And I was wondering, hopefully I'm not putting you on the spot. How do do those get emphasized within your context? What are they? Can you tell us more about those nine elements of leadership? Hmm. Yes, I hope I can. You can't. I'll just cut this out (laughs) of the recording and it'll be fine. (laughs) Sounds great. No, I, yes, the nine elements of leadership are basically how we want to see leadership being be reproduced. So we acknowledge that leadership is reproduced. It just is. Like, you know, you go into a place and you lead something and there is, there is be, there's something that's being reproduced there. And so acknowledging that that's the case, we want to be really intentional about what is being reproduced and what is it that we value. And so... And to, yeah, starting off with story, story is one of the nine elements um, that people, people come in with a certain story and that matters to God and that God's story, that we all fit into that story. And so thinking about, you know, what we were talking about earlier, um, seeing our friends and acknowledging our friends of color, like the pain that they've experienced, that's part of their story. And that that matters to God and it should matter to us. And it should be something that we are intentional about when we are reproducing leadership. Um, a staff, staff member with Destino, she, a former staff member with Destino, Christy Robinson wrote an article for Destino yearbook talking about, are we cloning people or are we discipling? And what is it, you know, how are we being intentional in our discipleship efforts to make sure that we, that we aren't just cloning people. And I think story is part of that. Um, identity is another like formative one where we believe that people's identities uh, really matter. And, you know, there is a, yeah, there, there are certain people who, if you read, um, particularly white people, who will say like that our ethnic identity is kind of, you know, secondary or maybe not really that important. We should think about our identity in Christ. And, and you know, those things are really um, part, of the, part of the same deal. You know, like God made us in our entirety purposefully with all of the facets of our identity. And so looking at those, I mean, we should be grounded in our identity in Christ, but we live in particular bodies for a reason. And that's part of our identity as well. So story, identity. Let me just interrupt for one second, ask you a question about that identity part. So what about for, if I'm a white person and I don't know a lot about my ethnic identity or my ethnic background, then am I, do I have a responsibility to to figure that out and know more about 
my story and that part of my story? Yes. <laughs> That's, <laughs> I think the answer is yes. I think how I'm actually wrestling through that right now, just because I don't, I don't know a ton about my, um, like my ancestral history and, and I've been been thinking about how can I do this well I think the parts of my culture that came that I needed to confront first were really how I've been shaped by whiteness by this force that um I mean this evil that kind of says like anyone who is not in these categories that we don't like that we want to oppress these are white people um, and how white white became a category like that was created to oppress others. Mm -hmm. Um, and so thinking about how I've been shaped by that, I think was like my first responsibility to really, um, look at those things, even to look at my, um, my kind of, I guess my Anglo American identity, like my individualism and just things that are, that I can see that are a part of who I am individually and part of the system that I walk in. So I hope that makes sense. But I think that that first part has, is like the first work of a, of a majority culture, a white person, um, to kind of look at what is my culture. And even, even if I can't connect it all to, you know, the path of immigration that my family took, um, I know what's in my heart and I know the culture that I'm that I'm a part of because I can observe it. I can read about it. I can, you know, reflect on myself and see the differences between me and others. And so I feel like that was kind of my first journey. Now I really am interested in what, what was, you know, the path that my, like the people that I'm related to, what, how did they get here? Um, what does that mean for me? And I don't have clear answers for that because I don't, none of my grandparents were like fully, one thing. So, um, I'm a little lost about where to start. I need to read some more books on that, but yes, identity being, being part and, and white people needing to do that work for sure. Um, and you don't get to, I, I don't think that you get to bypass the, the experience of really, what does it mean? Or, you know, even if I consider myself Irish American or French American, which is fine. Like, what does it mean that I, that I also have participated in this category of, of being white and how has that shaped me? Um, I don't think you get to bypass that, you know? So yeah, going back to the nine elements (laughs) there, I think we did too. So there's also emotional maturity and holistic transformation uh, just making sure that our emotions and, and being like a whole person and being God transforming our whole person, our whole lives, um, is, is a part of our walk with God. Do those go together? Yes. Okay. That's one. (laughs) Some of them are, yeah. Some of them are actually two, like integrity and nerve, which is one element, two words, uh, but yeah, having integrity, having nerve, um, which is the ability to like persist and keep going in something. Um, now I am getting, hold on a second. And then there's faith, hope, and love. Those are all different elements that we want to see, like the different things that we want to be pr- reproducing in leadership. And you can actually find this on 
the EPIC website, which is being redone right now, but I think resources.epicmovement.com is still up, um, even if that's folded into the website later. I don't know. I may have to update this, but uh, there's there's article there. There's a whole written description about what does this actually mean? Because everyone can say like hope is sure. Hope is part of what we want to express as leaders. Um, but what does hope mean? And definitely, what does hope mean in a in an environment where like people have been oppressed and people have been marginalized like what does hope look like and what is the actual hope that we're trying to reproduce in people um, when that's been their history so yeah servant leadership I think I'm, I'm getting close to have naming uh, that I've named all nine servant leadership is another like what does it mean to um to lead people and and to serve them like how how do we do this? And the best example of servant leadership that I've probably ever seen is Margaret Yu, who has been my boss pretty much for the last six, six, seven years, um, which is really incredible. She's one of the most amazing servant leaders I've ever encountered. Um, And seeing her really love and go, go into environments where she has been marginalized or even is currently being marginalized, you know, uh, she still goes in loving people. And, and I think that that's incredible. I've learned so much from her. So mm, I think I listed them all. I may have missed one. <laughs> Sorry. You did a great job. Thanks, Sam. Well, TJ, what are some of the things that you're thinking about next for Epic. We're starting a new school year. Have you started having your meetings, your planning meetings for the fall, and kind of what is on the forefront for Epic? I leave tomorrow to fly out to California. The whole family is going, um, when we will do our PNC meetings in person. Then I'll come home for a week, and then I'll go back out and be with our Epic leadership team. Uh, I've been on a distributed team now for the last six or seven years. Like I've, I've been, yeah, away not, not having an in-person team. So I used to say virtual team and my husband informed me that was incorrect because we're, we're real, (laughs) but we are distributed. So I do like that language better. Um, so yeah, what's next for Epic? I mean, that's a great question in the restructuring, you know, um, there's been, there's been difficulty. There's also been possibility and some things that maybe have opened up and then also some things that have been difficult. Like, I just think that there's no way around that. Um, so right now the conversations that we're having are, you know, how do we, um, what does discipleship look like in an Asian American context? What is, what is unique about discipleship in an Asian American context? Um, what do we, what are we wanting our students to walk? I mean, I think it's just really disheartening when you look at the world and you see even students who have graduated, you know, gone four years through crew and come out and, um, like, have they been taught in their discipleship experience 
what we were talking about earlier, to not oppress others, to not be racist. Like, have they learned any of those things? And I think about that for Epic students too. Like, how are, how are we, how is their spiritual formation um, it, preparing them really to be, to be good participants, good stewards in the world and people who are, will speak up for others, things like that. Um, and so what is our responsibility as EPIC in, yeah, like helping pe- helping students to live in the world that we live in? So I think about that. Maybe I'm the only person that thinks about that. That's not true. There are many. But we, we are thinking about discipleship in an Asian American context and thinking about, you know, some of our our structures and our systems and how we are going to do the things that we feel like God has called us to do and how do we live in this new world after the structure change. So um, those are some of the things that are on my mind. I think that I'm really excited for this next phase of epic life. I don't, I don't know what to call it. I think there have been you know, just different, different stories or different seasons. Seasons is the right word. There have been different seasons of ministry. Epic started as people who were having to moonlight doing Asian American ministry because they, they couldn't really do that during their, you know, main uh, job hours. So on top of all the crew stuff that they were doing, and they had to find time to do Asian American ministry. And praise the Lord, we're not in that place anymore. Um, but yeah, I think that there have been different seasons. And I am excited for the next season of Epic Ministry, what it's going to look like, um, what what God is going to do. I mean, I think there were things that happened last year that were just pretty incredible. Um, a couple of our movements sent 40% of their students uh, globally on short-term missions, whether that was a vision trip or a summer mission. And what is it? Yeah, what our students really offer something unique um, to the world. And I want, we want them all to embrace that, to see that. And how do we really help crew too um, to send, like, to send students of color to the world, which is an incredible thing. Um, there's so much, so much power and influence that our students carry just by virtue of who they are and how God has shaped them. And uh, Jonathan Gibo gave a talk at the Epic Staff Conference about all peoples going to all peoples and just that beautiful picture um, when, when sometimes that's not what happens. <laughs> so we really want to change that and send students and staff of color into the world. Um, so yeah, I think those things are happening. It's a they need to happen far more than they're happening now. And yeah, I'm excited for the role that Epic can play into, in that. I liked how you referenced the difficulties with the reorganization. You kind of reframed them as possibilities. I just watched this episode of The Office where Jim and Pam have gone to marriage counseling and then they're, they've kind of learned how to reframe and talk to each other about hard things and they're only allowed to call negative things opportunities. So there's this (laughs) whole episode where they'll get into these tense conversations and say, I'm really grateful for this opportunity (laughs) to, and so 
I think I have probably seen that before. And that is definitely (laughs) not, not how I want to operate. (laughs) I think that, I think that difficulty, there are difficulties and there are opportunities. And sometimes those are the same things, but sometimes they're not. Um, and I think our, our culture is, well, particularly Christian culture is just so in love with being positive. I don't know. We're obsessed with positivity when, um, yeah, I think just life isn't, uh, even I look at Jesus's example and I don't think that Jesus was obsessed with positivity. Um, yeah, there, there were natural, there were feelings that Jesus had that he expressed. Um, and even when you look at, at scripture, I think it's just really important that we embrace reality. Um, part of that becoming important to me was my, my parents have both passed away. Uh, my dad passed away in 2007, um, about three months after Jason and I got married. And then my mom died three years later, two and a half years later. Uh, yeah, when I was 29. So Mm. I found out that I was pregnant the week after my mom died. And it was really sad, you know, just that my mom, that, that they, they never got to meet my children or know, even know about my children. And so that really sent me on a journey to, to value grief, to embrace grief, which I don't think that, um, that American Christians do very well and I hadn't seen modeled to me, which is part of the reason I was thinking about this earlier. I love the Harry Potter books. <laughs> A lot of people love Harry Potter, but I feel like Harry Potter has some pretty deep things to say about grief and about the capacity for grieving and for sorrow. Um, and I'm sure there are five people listening who haven't read the books, and so I don't want to give it all away, but there, there's a, the difference between good and evil in some, in some of the books, in some of the situations, comes down to the capacity to love and henceforth like, to grieve. Like, only people who have loved can grieve. Um, mm-hmm. And Voldemort, you know, the main, character, the main bad character, cannot do either. He can't hmm. grieve because he never loved. And anyway, I just find the whole thing super fascinating, very healing for my heart. I read them every year <laughs> in you December. You do? Mm-hmm. All of them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. I like to read. But I think, I think that grieving is an important thing. And it's, you know, you can't do, I, I don't think that you can do cross-cultural ministry I don't think that you can walk along people of color if, if you don't lear, learn to lament and to grieve. And so what does it look like to, to hope um, in conjunction with that? Like they're, they're not opposites. I don't, we talk about, you know, um, the scriptures talk about grieving as ones who have no hope. Like we don't grieve as if we had no hope. But I also think we don't hope as if we never had grief. And we can tell when that's happening. I think particularly people of color can tell, like when white people are being overly positive or just kind of, you know, um, 
scooting over the bad things, the negative things, that that doesn't seem like an honest hope either. And so really seeing those things together, um, that actually grieving is, is necessary to have the, the capacity to authentically hope in, in what God wants to do in the world. And the converse, I think, is true, that hope is necessary to, to really grieve. Um, I think I've, I've talked about this with a friend, like if you had no hope, you wouldn't actually ever go into a season of lament or processing because it would just be too much. It would be too dark. You wouldn't be, you wouldn't think that you would ever come out of it. Um, and so grieving actually is, is expressing hope in a way. I think it's kind of weird to think about, but I see them as very tied together. Yeah, that when I grieve, I'm actually expressing hope um, that life should be different, that life could be different and expressing a belief that I'll come out on the other side, not, not grieving. <laughs> that's not, that's mm-hmm. not what hope is. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, that God will be with me in those things that I will see the Lord. Um, those that's very important to me. And I think it's important for the work that all of us are doing and have to do. That was so well said. I feel like that should be the 10th pillar or something or the <laughs> element, not the pillar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The tenth element. element. I mean, Let's hope is in it. there, but something about lament or grief. I'm sorry you lost your parents at such a young age. That must have been really, really difficult. Yeah, I feel like it's one of the things that has shaped me, you know, definitely shaped. Um, there, there are a few things, like my experience in Epic for sure has shaped me. Losing my parents, um, yeah, God has has used that to make me who I am. It's a very important part of my story, a very tender part of my story. And I think both of my parents' deaths were actually fairly traumatic in some ways, you know. Um, my, my mother caught pneumonia when I was in Hong Kong um, with mm-hmm. my husband. We were on our yearly visit and she just got, she got pneumonia. And by the time I came back to the States, um, she was intubated and unresponsive. And so my closure with her, I mean, I was grateful I was there um, to, you know, I, hold, I held her hand as she died and left this world. And that was meaningful to me. But the fact that I didn't get to have a conversation with her or really end our relationship in the way that I would have wanted to, um, yeah. That was something that the Lord had to meet me in the same way that God had to meet me three years before when um, it was 2007 and I joined staff that year. And Dan Allender, who is one of my heroes, was at new staff training and he gave a talk about, well, about his story. He gave a talk about a lot of things, but he talked about his relationship with his father and his relationship with his father had been difficult. And then at one point, Dan decided that he was going to apologize to his dad. Um, even though he felt wronged by his dad in some ways, he decided to take kind of the step of faith and he was going to apologize for his failings as a son. And I, I really took that to heart. The last year of my relationship with my dad had been very difficult. I had confronted him in 
about something. Like he was aware of sexual abuse that I had experienced and never really said anything or did anything to stop it. Um, and I had kind of confronted him about that and it didn't go well. He told me to get over it. Uh, so I was pretty bitter and at that new staff training, I decided, okay, I'm going to do that. I'm going to apologize to my dad. I really want our relationship to be different. I don't think what he did was right, but I'm going to take this step of faith. And then I was actually in the car on the way home from Colorado when I got the call that he had died. And so there was something in that, that, well, not something, it, it felt cruel to me. It felt, the timing felt cruel, just like that I had this thing in my heart that I wanted to express to him, that I, that I thought maybe our relationship could be different. Um, and then that, that chance was taken away. It was, it was difficult. I didn't understand. And so over time, I think it's still true that it feels, it feels cruel. Like I can still say that. I can still say that it seems that way. But over time, my relationship with the Lord has reassured my heart that I don't feel like it's cruel. Like, that's not what I believe about what happened, even though I can say that it still looks that, like that on the surface. Like, when I think about it, when I think about what happened and the timing. But knowing the Lord um, for the past, you know, 11 years now since my father died and continuing to be in relationship with the Lord... I think my heart, my heart has healed from that particular aspect. I don't feel, I don't feel bitter, you know, about the timing of that. Even though I still feel sad and I and I grieve it, and like we were talking about earlier, I grieve that, and I, I did have hope that something could be different, um, but that, yeah, I think that that wasn't, that that isn't my story, and I don't know why. I don't have good reasons for that, but it just isn't. Thank you for sharing just really intimate parts of your story with us, TJ. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. What are ways that you, are there ways, maybe is a good way to ask it, that you can see God using, redeeming that part of your story with your dad, losing him before you could say something you that you really felt like was on your heart to say or even the way you lost I mean it sounds like that was the same reality with your mom you didn't get to say what you wanted to say to her with my mom I felt like there was a lot less kind of unfinished business you know and so it didn't seem as as difficult but yeah it wasn't the end of the relationship that I would have wanted you know I mean I think every person knows at some point you know that most likely their parents are going to die. Um, but that these are not the ways that I thought that this would happen. And I didn't really think about it before. I was, I was pretty young, so it's, it wasn't a reality that I thought about a lot. Um, I, I don't know, I don't know what words I would use to say what, what God has done in my story, in my life. I think, I think resurrection is the closest word that I would use, that these places of death um, have become places of life for me. Not, you know, not that I'm glad my parents died, nothing like that, but just that one, 
the parts of me that I felt like died with them have life again and they have life because God is who God is and so I I don't know if I resonate if I resonate with the word redeemed like I I do believe that's part of the story but I think yeah the fact that God I, I believe in the resurrection and I believe that things that are dead will will be alive again um, and I believe that about my parents and I believe that about myself and my story and the difficult the things that feel insurmountable now, the things that feel like they are places of death, I believe that those things can live. Um, you know, when when God, you know, t- is it Ezekiel? God takes and shows this valley of dry bones, and he says, can these, son of man, can these bones live? And he says, only you know. And I think that, man, that's just the most honest answer that we can give. Like when these things happen in our lives, um, we can have hope that it will be, you know, that that we'll see some measure of redemption or or whatever word you want to use it, use to describe it. But can those places become live again? Only, Only God knows. And I think it's not promised to us, but... I mean, eventual resurrection is promised to us, but what we see in this life is not promised. And so, man, I just think that's tricky, and it, it's hard to talk about that well in a Christian setting. I get very annoyed by, once mm. again, our obsession with positivity. And this is why, because, you know, life life hasn't always been positive. There are, but there are things about my life that are difficult, and, you know, the people who have experienced far more um, difficulty than I have. I just think, how does this feel to them? You know, the way that we talk about life. Um, and so his answer of only you know feels like the most honest thing that we can say. Like only God knows what parts of our story God is going to use. Only God knows what parts um, of death that we experience that will be resurrected in this life, you know, before the life to come. So those words resonate with me as as truthful. It sounds like the elements of faith, hope, and love mm. in your own story. Yeah, thanks for saying that. I I think that is true. In a in a very not I don't know faith, hope, and love. Like I I see them written. You know those wood signs that are really popular now. <laughs> I, I kind of want one for my house, so I'm not like belittling it. But I, I just see those words written, faith, hope, love. And they're they're powerful, but but it's these aspects of them that I think give them power. And it's not always the way that they're used in our kind of Christian subculture. We can use them in a in actually in a demeaning way that diminishes what mm. they're really about. Um, or we can use them in in deeply resonant and truthful ways that that encompasses all of the things that we grieve all of the things that um that we that we don't love you know when we say faith hope and love um it has those words have to be robust they have to mean i think um what what god has what how god means them mm-hmm. and i don't i don't think we always do that well I can also, I can see why you like to read Harry Potter every year 
I mean, he, <laughs> the story opens presenting him as a child who doesn't have his parents anymore. Yes. And I'm not going to spoil anything for anyone, but resurrection might be part of the story. Totally. I, Maybe. I might cry just thinking about <laughs> I, really? the seventh book I read. I cry every single time I read it. And it mm-hmm. doesn't matter that it's probably my 10th time. You know, I just, I just cry and I just am in the story so much where I feel mm-hmm. it. And, and it, yeah, it does mean something significant to me. There's even after both of my parents' deaths, I had really significant dreams about them Hmm. and like dreams that God used to heal my heart in a very mystical, powerful way that only God can do. And that's, that's, I think, you know, it sort of reminds me of stuff that happens to Harry in the seventh book. And so those dreams were significant for me in just having closure, I felt like because I didn't get the chance to apologize to my dad, I think that was one of the first times that I really understood what Jesus had done for us. I know that's weird because I was already on staff at that point, but most quote unquote sin in my life, um, I have the opportunity to make restitution for in some way. There are very few things that I am powerless to go back and change or to to apologize. You know, these different things that we can do to kind of feel like we're making restitution. When when my dad died, it was a loss of that for me. Like I he had cancer that last year of his life and I really did not love him well in the ways that I would have wanted. And it just felt like I felt so lost, so bereft, like I I can't do anything. And so actually needing to believe that Jesus is who Jesus says he was and that he did the things that he said he did, I needed to believe that in in the different way, in a new way. And the dream that I had was my dad in this bed, maybe a hospital bed, which he was in a lot in that last year, and me saying to him, I'm sorry. And him looking at me and saying, oh, child, I'll see you soon. And like, I just, it was so significant to me. Because um, actually I didn't, I had a lot of conversations with my dad where I wasn't totally sure that he was a believer. And so those you know, when you wake up from a dream, and I don't have a lot of dreams that I feel like are from the Lord, but I've had a few where I've woken up and said immediately, like, that was God speaking to me. Mm-hmm. And so that dream was so powerful, so healing for my heart, um, and something that God, yeah, just God used it to heal this place. And I think that's what I, that's part of what I mean by resurrection. Like, it's just, I think there's God changing us is totally mystical. There's no other word for it. We don't we don't participate as much as we like to pretend that we participate. I think we do have a role in <laughs> our, you know, in what God does in our lives, but we're we're so um we just don't have the power that we think we do. And so God healing that place uh, in my heart felt like a, a tiny piece of resurrection that this place was dead and God made it alive again. And that, 
yeah, I'm just so grateful and amazed. Like those are things I could not have done for myself, you know, no matter how many great things I did or how many times I read scripture. I just think that God, God did that for me. It's reminding me of in Mark when Jesus is on the way to, well, Jairus has come to him and said, come heal my daughter. And, And on the way, the woman touch it, grabs Jesus cloak mm-hmm. or clothes or something. And yeah. he turns to her and calls her daughter and says, your faith has healed you. And then, and then someone comes from Jairus's house and says, well, never mind. You don't your need to come dead. anymore. Your daughter died. Totally. And Jesus of course goes anyway and resurrects her. Yes. I I actually spoke on that story a couple of years ago. That's like one of my favorite thing, one one of my favorite passages, maybe my favorite passage, Hmm. the interplay between Jesus and that woman and the fact that that's the only person he calls daughter, the only person Hmm. he, yeah, it's so significant that Jairus, this woman is, I mean, we could go back and talk about everything that we've already talked about, but this woman was totally on the margins of society um, her life had been over really for 12 years, which is how old Jairus's daughter was. You know, she had been bleeding right. for 12 years. Jairus's daughter was 12 years old and they both experienced resurrection that day because that woman's mm-hmm. life, you know, yeah, she, there's so much about her story that you, it, it, that it maybe is not immediately apparent that has to be mined for even thinking about really the, the abuse that she probably suffered as a woman who had, who was bleeding, um, bleeding, you know, from her vagina in the first century. Like that's not, it said that she had gone to doctors and spent all the money she had. And so I just think of really, um, the, probably the ways that she was exploited, um, potentially, Yeah, I think it says she suffered at the hand of many doctors or something like that. It does. That's exactly what it says. She suffered at the hands of many doctors. And so, yeah, just that abusive, exploitive past that she had, you know, the the suffering that she had received, and then her condition would have put her on the margins of the society. There's no mention of her family. There's no father in the picture like Jairus. And so he's there really as like such a, I don't know, what's the word? Contrast, this loving father. Yeah, Mm -hmm. like begging life of his daughter. Um, And Jesus, Jesus calls her daughter. I just think that's, yeah, it would, it would make me weep just thinking about it. The fact that this is the only person that he gives this to, that he is really seeing, he's seeing her and he's seeing what her heart needs um, her what her physical body needs, but also what her heart needs, and the relationships that she has been—I don't know, maybe robbed of, or what she doesn't have them at this point in the story. And he and he sees that, and I just—I uh, love Jesus. <laughs> I get annoyed <laughs> with Christianity, but man, I love Jesus. And mm-hmm. watching the way that he treats this woman, um, yeah, it does heal my heart. It does mm-hmm. uh, tell me something just deep and true about who God is. 